Wistful Thinking is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more movie and nostalgia podcasts, visit cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome to Wistful Thinking, the podcast where we revisit pop culture from our youth to see if it's as good all grown up. I'm Jordan Poland clark With me is my co-host, Kara Gail O'Regan. Hello. Hi, and welcome to Kirsten Dunst Month which we accidentally started last month. <laughs> um, Eternal Sunshine was a really good segue into this, I feel mm-hmm. like. Um, I think, Kara, you've brought up doing Kirsten Dunst before. You made the push for this. Oh, all the time. Yeah. I love her. She's perfect in every way. Um, also, last year we did another Kirsten Dunst movie, Little Women. She plays the younger Amy March. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Joe, you're one beauty. Oh, <laughs> she's so good in it. She's so good in it. She's so good in everything. And I'm always um kind of shocked that I like her. Yeah. Or like I forget that she makes really interesting choices. Because mm-hmm. you think that she's just like blonde ingenue, you know, another another one of those or whatever. But and then she so makes all these weird and wonderful movies. Yeah, she's yeah. so much more than that. I discovered that uh, she is currently, question mark, I'm not sure like where in the production process they are, um, working on her first feature as a director. Oh, cool. She you know is, what the movie is? Yeah, she's making uh, an adaptation of Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. Whoa. So... Something uh, that's really interesting about her career, and I did not come up with this. I've seen other people talk about it, but there's this kind of like Kirsten Dunst depression extended universe. Mm-hmm. Yep, <laughs> where for sure. She's made all of these movies where she's like extremely depressed in them. Um, what we're talking about today, uh, The Virgin Suicides, is one of them. Um, so obviously this is, we're going to be touching on some sensitive topics, which, uh, might be triggering for some people. So just wanted to bring that up right at the beginning. And if you are thinking about suicide or are worried about a friend or a loved one, or would like emotional support, there are resources available. Um, one of them is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You can call 1-800-273-8255 available 24 hours every day. If making a phone call is too intimidating, there is the crisis text line. You can text uh, HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741741 from anywhere in the United States, anytime about any type of crisis. Um, But also, you know, if there's uh, other uh, issues that you have, there are like so many different Uh, hotlines out there for people of all walks of life so if you feel like a general broad one is not going to meet your needs there's things like the trans lifeline and others that might offer some more specialized support so um, help us out there don't be afraid to look for it you can do a google Um, yeah so we just wanted to get that out of the way the top of the show and we didn't know how to segue out of this, so I'm doing it very awkwardly. What else are we talking about today? 
Well, well, we can go into this movie a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a movie about five sisters who are teenagers who all commit suicide, which I did not find devastating the first time that I watched this because I was a kid, mm-hmm. and the the weight of it didn't really. Yeah. Just uh, I didn't, you know, feel the the weight of it. It was kind of like just a movie. But but this time I was like a mess from the very beginning. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, cuz I mean it's the first scene of the movie um just drops you right into it. Uh the the youngest sister, Cecilia, mm-hmm. uh who is 13, first makes an attempt and then later in the film completes a suicide attempt so um there's like three different points at which uh the girls in this movie attempt suicide because then all four of them do it together at the end which is upsetting right so the movie follows these five sisters who live in Michigan, in, like, kind of yeah. an affluent suburb in Michigan. One of the, yeah, one of the, like, uh, wealthier Detroit suburbs. Although they are not, they are not wealthy. No, because their father is a math teacher at a Catholic school. And their mother is a homemaker. She does not have a mm-hmm. job, right? Correct. Um, I think, did you read the book? I did read the book, but I don't really remember it. I mean, it was just so long ago. Yeah, I was surprised by how much of the book that I remembered uh, by Jeffrey Eugenides. I don't know what year it came out, but, um, or what year I read it. I think it came out in the early 90s, I want to say. Yeah. Um, I feel like in the book they were homeschooled. Does that sound familiar? Um... Maybe. I mean, they are kind of homeschooled eventually in this as well. Yeah. So they, so they're, and I think there's a lot more details about this in the book. Yes. But uh, they, their mother is incredibly strict and religious and their father seems like he might not be, but kind of just goes along with it. Yeah. Um. He's kind of just at the will of these six women that he has to live with. <laughs> yeah. Um, and does his best, which, like, the scenes in the movie where you see him trying to relate to other humans, like, I think those are some of the best scenes in the movie and also some mm. of the saddest. Yeah. Um, but so so they already have, um, you know, super strict parents. And then after the youngest sister kills herself it just like escalates so 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 far to the point where they're pulled out of school they're not really allowed to leave the house and they're also not being cared for at Mm -hmm. home because their mother and father have kind of checked out yeah yeah so they're kind of on their own right and have like no real resources to to be on their own like physically or emotionally yeah they and they've also been through what is extremely traumatic like losing us not just losing a sister to suicide and then like the like uh 
weirdness with their parents but to also like have lost her and and see it happen in such a, a graphic way I think is like extremely traumatizing and like no no one in this story has the tools to deal with it at all Mm-mm. no uh, and so this story is told from the point of view of um, a group of boys mm-hmm. um, who are around the same age as the girls. They're teenagers, um, one of whom lives right across the street from the girls. And so they're able to kind of like peer into their lives um, in this kind of like voyeuristic way. Uh, so this movie was directed by Sofia Coppola, who adapted the screenplay herself. Um, apparently she just did it on her own because she didn't even plan on being a director. And then she read this book and it was the first time when she was like, oh, I can make this movie. Like she could see it very clearly in her head. So she like adapted the screenplay herself and then found out that, a studio had a screenplay that they were already developing, but then it turned out that they were very unhappy with that screenplay written by a man. And so she was able to be like, Hey, I already have one. It's finished. Um, and so they made this movie. And, um, so even though it is this story about these girls, it's really a story about these boys and it's told through the perspective of these boys and even the uh, voice over the narration throughout the film is the voice of a man, but it's refracted through kind of Sofia Coppola's like very feminine filmmaking and like very female gaze, which I found really interesting. At, like revisiting it now as an adult and like having a better understanding of these things I have mixed feelings about all that like mm-hmm. can, like can it like can it truly be like obviously it's it's through the eyes of a woman because a woman made this movie mm-hmm. but then filtered again through mm-hmm. the eyes of male characters who were written by a man yeah no for sure um, which is why I use the word refract mm-hmm. because it's like, I don't know. It's like all of these things passing through these filters and kind of like bouncing off of things. Um, I don't know if that makes sense to people who are not inside my brain. Uh, where is I going with that? I don't remember. I don't, but yeah, no, I understand what you mean, but it's interesting. Um, Oh, this is what I was going to say, that, like, sometimes in order to make a movie about a woman or women, um, like, people need to be tricked into making it or, like, tricked into watching it by being like, oh, no, but it's really this story about these men, you know? Like how um, Amy Heckerling made Look Who's Talking about a male baby with Bruce Willis's voice to trick the studio into making a movie that's actually about a single mom in her 30s yeah I mean I don't I think like in this case like I just wonder like what that means for this story Mm -hmm. because it means that we 
don't know we don't know these women no of course not and like we were talking about in the last episode about like clementine and eternal sunshine of the spotless mind that so much of what we see of her in the film is not actually her it's like jim carrey's Mm -hmm. character's recollection of her or projection of her or like whatever um and that's very much the case in this film as well this is a story that is told at a dis at like a great distance from its subjects you know and it's just like it's all of this like these boys have constructed this idea of these women um that is probably so far removed from who they truly were well right and it makes them and it's like because well because they're all really pretty and because they're really mysterious because they're kind of like locked away and they're not allowed to like socialize and because there's so many of them Mm -hmm. and they have their own like cluster together like all of those things get added up to make them like the ultimate like manic pixie dream girl and they're very much like romanticized and their sadness is kind of romanticized and I think that was one of the like main criticisms of this movie when it came out is like why would you make a movie about this oh I think that's like a gross interpretation of this movie then though like if if people are seeing this movie and like seeing like this is some sort of like glorification of it I think no I don't even think that was like the criticism i think it was like a little bit more subtle than that mm-hmm. i don't know uh well there's a voiceover quote from the film that i think kind of really encapsulates like it and it it happens during one of the strongest i think fantasy sequences in the whole movie it's like right after the boys get their hands on cecilia's diary after mm-hmm. she dies um and so they're um, the reading from the diary and you're hearing Cecilia's voice like reading some of the the stuff that she had written and it's all sorts of pretty dreamy visuals and then the voiceover that says uh, we felt the imprisonment of being a girl the way it made your mind active and dreamy and how you ended up knowing which colors went together we knew that the girls were our twins that we exist that we all existed in space like animals with identical skins this is from the book and not the movie it's different in the movie interesting okay i think if that's true then the book probably does a better job like i think this is my one like problem with the movie is it doesn't really like it doesn't go quite far enough to make a commentary on the situation Mm -hmm. um you know of these boys romanticizing the girls in such a strong way um because even as they're even with the voiceover when they're when they're older and looking back at it they're not there's never an acknowledgement of how sad the situation was Mm. and how like devastating yeah it's more just like a dreamy like remembering of these mysterious women kind of i think that the like because also there's this parallel or kind of like background 
ecological horror story that's unfolding. Yes. And this is definitely more so in the book. And in, in the film, it's just kind of like some background things that are happening. Like Dutch elm disease is like taking over the neighborhood and there's mm-hmm. this tree in their front yard that becomes kind of central to the story in the book and has some, um, has like a featured role in the movie. Um, and, uh, like uh, Cecilia was, was very concerned and she's like a more active character in the book too um, when she actually sorry to interrupt you mm-hmm. but I do feel like in the movie she's like maybe actually the one that we get to know mm-hmm. the best in some ways well, even because they like, have the text of her diary and so no but even before that like there's that scene where they're at dinner mm-hmm. and she is or it's like right after dinner and she's sitting in the kitchen with her mom and she's talking about like an environmental thing some some animal is going extinct and she's like really really upset about Mm -hmm. it and I feel like that gives a really good glimpse into into her kind of depression and like Mm -hmm. where she's at like and that's a better glimpse almost than we get into anyone else besides Lux yeah that's true um, that's definitely true. We don't really get to know the other sisters, like, at all. <laughs> you know, like, they get introduced, and that's kind of it. Um, I think we get to know a little bit more about the mother and father through uh, the way the house is decorated and the way that um, they are framed kind of amongst their belongings, whether it's in the home or, like, in his classroom um, or in the school. Um, but I, the, there's just, I think, too much going on in the movie to, like, get to know all five girls, you know? hmm And because I think, like, the artifacts that these boys have of the girls, um, like I said, Cece- like, actually having the text of Cecilia's diary and getting her first-person account of things, and then Lux being this one figure who is like venturing outside of the family in some way and like so that like those are like the two people that they're able to like observe outside of this group of girls you know mm-hmm. what I mean mm-hmm. um well I, I wrote down a, in a abridged version of that quote that I was reading before I realized that it was from the book and of the movie um something about how you uh knew wound up knowing which colors went together uh we knew that they knew everything about us and that we couldn't fathom them at all i think that's a really interesting quote why don't remember why (laughs) i'm not disagreeing i do Mm -hmm. too i was just asking why you do well because i mean teenage boys are just as much of a mystery to teenage girls i think i do too um, but this isn't a two-way exchange of information, really, you know? Right. Well, I think, so, I think part of the reason that quote stood out to me is because it, I think that it perpetuates this idea in our society of, like, women being so much more complex than men and women being more emotionally mm-hmm. smart than men and you know all all those that kind of thing and I just don't think which is all true by the way no I don't think it is <laughs> true and I think we 
we uh, sorry unprofessional <laughs> i don't know how to turn that off on my computer <laughs> it's just a spam phone call um so i don't i don't think that that kind of thing is true although i think it's like a something that like really 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 is felt in our culture and i think mm-hmm. it's something that's incredibly harmful to both women and men yeah no i totally agree uh, particularly totally men yeah you know <laughs> for sure which then in turn harms the women or or anybody who's trying to have a relationship with a man who thinks that he can't be emotionally intelligent or yeah you know have have traits that we in our culture consider like you know more feminine mm-hmm. or whatever and i think that to have that like kind of quote in this kind of movie about teenagers and this kind of like dreamy at pretty atmosphere is like I don't know like I don't I don't need that I don't because I think I can imagine like hearing that kind of quote as a teenager mm-hmm. and I feel like I would really buy into it you know if I was 16 yeah yeah um I, well, obviously, it's, like, a very different experience of this movie watching it when you're 16 versus watching it when you're totally. an adult mm-hmm. who's taken several film studies classes <laughs> and, like, whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I actually... Um, the reason that I like this movie for young women specifically is... I, how sophisticated the filmmaking is like even if it's like um because Sofia Coppola gets a lot of shit for being uh uh just you know the product of nepotism because her father is Francis Ford Coppola and like whatever um and that's true but obviously privilege comes in all sorts of forms and and there are so many filmmakers out there who are regarded as people who made their own way, who had plenty of, you know, um, behind the scenes kind of connections that we don't get to hear about. Um, and I think actually being, and not just the daughter of Francis Ford Coppola, her mother is also a filmmaker, apparently on the criterion blu-ray of the virgin suicides you can also see a behind the scenes documentary that her mother made um she's made a bunch of behind the scenes documentaries of her various like family members films uh most notably apocalypse now uh which i've been meaning to see that documentary but um where was i going with this uh, oh, that like being who she is and being exposed to so much film over the course of her life and a lot of film that like most people don't like, especially at that time, like wouldn't be seeing a lot of like European and art house kind of stuff. Like her filmmaking is so much more sophisticated than um, what a lot of times is produced for young women you know what I mean and I think it's like I don't know what I'm trying to say where am I going with this you're just trying to give her credit for being good at stuff oh yeah she's great 
And also she was trained as a fine artist first, which I always find really interesting. A lot of like the directors that I enjoy the most are people who were like painters or fine artists first. Um, and I think that like that, like her film language and her creative um, eye and creative output, I think is a lot more interesting than most people's. Oh, it's so boring. Though. I know, but it is boring. And like, I like that. It turns <laughs> out I enjoy movies that are boring, beautiful, but have some sort of like strong point of view, which I think all of her films do. I would be, I mean, I haven't, I'm making that judgment having not seen, I haven't seen all of them, and the ones that I have seen, I have not seen in a long time, besides mm-hmm. The Virgin Suicides, which I just watched again, but like, I saw Lost in Translation when it came out, I saw Marie Antoinette when it came out, and I just hated them. I think them. both of them are worth revisiting. I, I watched Marie Antoinette a few months ago, and I watched Lost in Translation this week, um, and... I don't know. I think they're very interesting films. I mean, I would love to see a cut of Lost in Translation that's just a hundred minutes of Scarlett Johansson doing things by herself. Like, I don't need Bill Murray to be there. Um, I would prefer it if Bill Murray wasn't there, you know? Um, And they're they're really, like, beautiful films. Like, and I, I, maybe this is because I am a visual artist, a very visual thinker and visual person that, like, I don't necessarily need something to be interesting if it looks nice (laughs) yeah I mean if it's interesting and it looks nice great um and I think that things you know something things can be interesting to me that aren't necessarily interesting to most people just because of my weird artist brain you know yeah I I mean then then you can just get into like you know, why make something a movie? Why make mm-hmm. something a feature-length movie? And, you know, if it's not going to be about anything and it's all based on visuals, like, you know, you're probably gonna... Yeah, which is not to say... I make some people not like it. I, that's not the kind of... I don't think that that's the kind of movies that Sofia Coppola makes. I'm not saying that there's nothing there. I think there's actually, like, a lot there f- with her movies. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know. It's just that she gets a lot of shit for being, like, boring and, like, making these beautiful, boring movies, and I have given her shit for it myself in the (laughs) past. I take it all back. Um, But, like, men have been making fucking boring movies forever. Like, let a lady do it. Who cares? You know? Oh, yeah, no, and she, like, I'm sure gets, like, more flack for it because she's a woman. Yeah, for sure. I I was trying to think back at, like, at Lost in Translation and Marie Antoinette kind of as I watched this and you tell me if this seems right it's it's like she makes movies that feature these these female characters who seem it's like we never get enough information about them mm-hmm. so they seem boring or quiet or their reactions aren't what we expect them to be in whatever situation that they're in and I can I can see that as being very purposeful and being representative of like what often happens to women in real life Mm -hmm. where they 
get kind of shut down or have to alter their behavior based on a situation that they're in where you would look at them and not see anything but there's actually so much going Mm -hmm. on on the inside yeah so I think like watching this again that's like kind of how I started to interpret her characters that I once was like they're boring yeah 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 yeah. but it doesn't make it easy to watch yeah you know and like not all movies should be easy to watch you know what I mean yeah um like because of who she is and the connections that she has and her ability to get funding for these relatively small projects. I mean, with the exception, I guess, of Marie Antoinette, um, which was definitely like a much bigger deal, but um, these like small productions that kind of happen like outside of the system, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So she doesn't have to make movies that are like, algorithmically predicted to succeed or she doesn't have to make movies that are these you know bland rom-coms or or like very formulaic stories she can make a a different kind of story that has that doesn't necessarily um adhere to the classical like formula for american films and and you know having that background and, and and being exposed to to so much foreign film i think um enables that to some extent but it's it's mostly um i mean it's mostly a funding thing like she can kind of do what she wants and she also is not just a director like she wasn't plan like i said she wasn't planning on becoming a director she she doesn't have to keep being a director if she doesn't want to like she makes a movie when she wants to make a movie or feels compelled by a subject or like lost in translation apparently it was just kind of like a you know passion project that mm-hmm. she just like wrote the script and then like stole most of the shots and like shot it in less than a month and you know just got it done so like that amount of freedom enables a more challenging i think kind of filmmaking and you're the one who's always like why can't people make original films i know i'm not mad that she makes movies (laughs) but i'm not gonna not criticize them because who would i be if i was saying something positive about something (laughs) can't imagine no i actually i love this movie i think it's great Um, this is my favorite movie that she has made i think yeah and like the adapting this book i think was a huge task in general because it's it's kind of like if i remember correctly like there are like images in there and like drawings and like it's it's very much like um almost like an investigation like the guy Mm -hmm. who's doing the voiceover in the movie like he is going back and he's talking about this at the very beginning of the film that like no like no one can put together what happened like why did any of this happen what you know and, and and contextualizing it within that ecological horror story of the 70s that I was talking about and then also the decline of the auto industry and the Detroit area in general so it's like contextualized inside of this and he's talking about like is that what set it off or 
what exactly happened and why did any of this happen and so he's like going back and doing interviews which you see a little bit of in the movie there's only Um, one in this movie no there's actually there's pieces of other ones like earlier in the film especially like after there are after cecilia's first attempt um you know there's like neighbor ladies and stuff yeah 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 but the the one major like interview scene in this movie is with adult trip which actually is is so long that it seems like it's in the wrong movie yeah like it's like they i feel like they may be shot a lot more Mm-hmm. Of those kind of looking back interviews, oh for sure, and, and not everything didn't made it use in. Most of yeah. them, yeah, 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 because of how long this one is and how out of place it feels. Even though it gives some really interesting context, mm-hmm. and I think so. Uh, the character of Trip, I don't know. Can you explain it? Because I Trip Fontaine yeah, flustered. Yes. Okay, Trip Fontaine is played by Josh Hartnett. And he's so beautiful. Oh, my God. He's wearing a dumb 70s wig. Oh, it's such a bad wig. But other than that. (laughs) But he is so beautiful. And he's like the boy in school that all the girls want. And he decides that he wants to go out with Lux, who is Kristen Dunst, which I actually don't think we've said yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... He starts to pursue her. Um, She's kind of whatever about it at first. And then she really wants to date him. He has to, like, go to her dad to ask permission. And then he's allowed to come over and watch TV. And they have this kind of, like, very nothing slow romance. And he's just, like, doing whatever he can. Um, And then finally he convinces um, the parents that him and a group of guys are going to take the girls to the homecoming dance um so that happens and it's like a big deal because like you know it's it's the it's at the point where the girls like aren't really leaving the house very much oh no 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 no. the lockdown happens after that yeah so but 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 he gets out of the car to take the girls to the dance and is wearing this beautiful burgundy question mark dark purple question mark i'm unsure exactly what the color is but it's this beautiful tailored velvet suit (laughs) that is i gasped audibly (laughs) gasped when he got out of the car because it's incredible anyway continue so the boys take the girls to the homecoming dance lux and uh trip sneak away to have sex on the football field and and so, then he leaves her so there he le- so he leaves her there so not only does she miss her curfew like all the other girls go home without her because they fell asleep um and she wakes up and yeah she's alone. and she just wakes up alone on the football field and has to like take a cab home in the middle of the night and after that the girls are like locked down forever like not allowed out of the house mm-hmm. not allowed to interact socially not going to school um but so then this interview is of Trip Fontaine as an adult and talking he's like in about a rehab center. Yeah, but you don't know that till the very end of the interview. Yeah. Like, well, I read the book so I didn't know that. <laughs> what? I read the book so I did know oh, that. But, right. yes, but in the correct. movie you don't really know that until the end yeah. of the interview and you're like, "Oh." 
Because okay. they <laughs> kind of drop pieces of that interview in. Like, once they introduce the character of Trip, which is about uh, not quite halfway through the movie, but further than, like, a little into the second act, um, um, they start dropping in these pieces of this interview, and he's talking about how, like, Lux, he never got over her. Like, he's loved a lot of ladies, but never like that. Don't, doesn't that make you just want to kill him? It, the, the, when I rewatched it, yeah. Like, well, when I rewatched like... it today, yes. I forgot that he left her on the football field. So when I rewatched it last week, I was like, oh, yeah. It's like he it pursued her and pursued her and pursued her until fucking... he fucked her. And then left he her literally the abandoned field. her immediately yes. and never spoke to her again. Yeah. And now he's all like, and he's the one who's all fucked up got, about yeah, it. Like a boo hoo. I never got over that girl. Like, shut up, dude. You're the worst. Yeah. Oh, that made me so mad. And it's like, <laughs> I, it, and you feel you feel bad for him too because obviously he has his own problems. Yeah. But it's like you ruined that girl's life. Hmm. Well, I, I mean, her life is already exactly. kind of ruined, but you know what yeah. I mean. Like, it didn't help. Um, <laughs> Definitely did not help. She because Lux, Lux, like acts out in a way that's really different than the other girls, and mm-hmm. like c- clearly is just seeking any kind of attention. Yeah. And for her, it turns into seeking sexual attention, mm-hmm. which it's very easy for her to get because she's gorgeous. Yeah. Um, I don't think that it started with him. No, um, I don't either. But it definitely accelerated after him. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And, do, I mean, and it's like maybe there was this, like, glimpse of, like, maybe this one will be different because... Mm-hmm. He, he was, like, kind of pursuing her in a way that seemed, like, beyond just sexual, you know? He was, mm-hmm. like, coming over to their house and, like, trying to do nice things and, I don't know. So it's, like, maybe for her there was some hope that this would be something nice for her life. Yeah. Maybe it would save her in a, in a way. <sighs> Peach schnapps. Babes love it. That made me remember that, like, like, did you used to drink peach schnapps in high school? No. Because I definitely did. And definitely oh, haven't God, drank no. it since then. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, that is very high school. Yeah, oh, for sure. But, ew. <laughs> that was good when I was 16. Whatever. I'm sure. Um, but... Uh, the character of Trip, I think, is an interesting how he is uh, framed, at least like young Trip when he's introduced, um, is an interesting uh, example of like Sofia Coppola's female gaze and like um, her ability to display a very feminine kind of desire um because like his character is introduced and like there's no music playing at first and then like you see him get like his first like he like flirts with the 
girl who gives people hall passes Mm -hmm. or whatever when he's late in the morning and like she like stamps the thing and he like turns around and walks out and um heart's magic man starts playing he puts his sunglasses on does he put his sunglasses yes he does and like okay struts out and then it's like this montage of him you know just being a ladies man um but heart of course the iconic lady rock band that's not the right word for that but you know women playing rock music um and then there is uh after he's like gone over to their house to like sit there oh the horny makeout scene in the car yep um there's another heart song that starts playing i didn't put together that those are both heart songs yeah just now yeah crazy on you he like gets in the car and is like vibrating with horniness and then she comes out and then they make out and it's like intense and he takes her gum (laughs) out of his mouth (laughs) yeah yeah um and then like when they go to and i wish that there was more of this in the movie and there probably originally was and it didn't wind up making it all in there but when they go to pick the girls up for the uh dance and they're like doing the whole like pin in the boutonniere on the dress thing what a weird ritual but um the camera like pans down to Kirsten Dunst's waist and then like a little like kind of you get like a little look under inside her dress and like on the hip of her underwear she has embroidered his name which is a reference to something that they said earlier in the movie yeah and there, so. this she is actually done this much for bigger, other boys before <laughs> much bigger in the book yeah she had like fallen in love with their garbage man and like put his name on all her underwear and her mom bleached it all out <laughs> yeah um and it's just like i don't know it's like a very like girly i i cannot describe what i'm trying to talk about but that's not like if a man had made this movie we wouldn't have seen that or we would have seen it in a very different way you know as well, opposed I to feel just like, this, like little men cartoon don't bubble. even know Oh, well, yeah. Stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, have you ever done anything like that? Well, not on my underwear, but you know, when you have a crush on someone in like middle school and you know, you like write their name all over Mm -hmm. everything and stuff like that. I never did that because I was so mortified by the (laughs) thought of somebody ever finding it. (laughs) Well, but like, but yeah, no, I know what you mean. Do stuff like that all the time. Well, I feel like that would be the obvious thing to show, and I love that weird little detail, like a different way of showing that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, like showing it in this little like cartoon bubble, as opposed to like showing her getting dressed and like no, yeah, we didn't objectifying like, her in yeah. that way, yeah. yeah. Um. Another interesting thing, like I was talking about before, we learn a lot about the parents in the way that they're framed, like amongst their belongings. Um, And in the setting of the house, like when the boys come over for, uh, I guess, Cecilia's birthday party, somebody's birthday party. I don't know. They have some sort of party. Oh, they have a party because the, the, um, Oh, the psychiatrist yeah. that Cecilia sees, who's played by Danny DeVito, uh-huh. um, you know, says that it would be good for her to, like, you know, have some social activities. So they have a right. party. Right. And she kills herself at the end of the party. Yeah. During the party. 
Oh, well, before that, like, after she makes her first attempt, and she's in the hospital, and a doctor asks, what are you doing here, little girl? You're not even old enough to know how bad life gets. And she says, obviously, doctor, you've never been a 13-year-old girl, which is so true. It's perfect. It's perfectly delivered. It's perfectly written. Yeah, she's so good. Um, Why was I talking about this? I don't know. You were going to say something about the party and the parents. Oh, yeah, that, like... When the boys come in the door, like, the first thing that they see are these, uh, right next to the door, all perfectly arranged, these five pairs of copper baby shoes, um, which to me says, like, like everything that you need to know about their mother that she has is, like, clinging to the, the childhood of these five girls that are, you know, almost adults. That she has these baby shoes still, like, proudly on display. As the, and that's the first thing that you see when you walk in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, I just found that really interesting. Kathleen Turner plays their mother. She's wonderful in this. Um, James Woods plays their dad. He's very good in this, although in general, in life, he's a real shithead. Why? Uh, Oh, he is not great. I don't, I don't know anything about him. Mm, he's shitty, like, politically, and then mm-hmm. also um, not great with young women. Boo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, um, oh, what's her name? I hate that I'm going to describe her this way because she's famous for all sorts of other reasons, but she's married to David Cross now. Oh, Amber Tamlin. Amber Tamlin. Yeah. Um, she had, like written something about being on set with him that was not flattering uh yeah but he is really good in this um there's a wonderful scene after cecilia has died when their family priest comes by the house and he is doing checked out dad watching baseball watching Yeah. (laughs) yeah sports watching um and the priest comes in and like sits with him and like tries to get him to talk and it's like not gonna happen so he gets up and he's leaving the room and the father or the dad says father like he's like he wants to to actually talk and so the priest turns around and he's like says something about baseball like he like lost his nerve to be able to talk about it yeah you Um, just get the feeling that it's like he's sewing over his head oh for sure for sure it's really sad and he goes upstairs and he you know tells the girls that he's there if they want to talk and then he goes to the mother's room and she's just sitting on her bed like staring into space we just see her back um and the priest tells her that he listed cecilia's death as an accident and not a suicide which um is uh, for Catholics, like, an important hmm. distinction because of the way that the Catholic Church views suicide. Um, like, I don't know, which is all so absurd. Um, but it's funny to me when people say things like that because if you believe in God and, like, you believe that he cares about these sorts of things, he, she, they, whatever, if they care about that sort of thing, don't you think they'd know? Like, duh. Right. <laughs> As if they didn't know. You can't trick oh, it God was, by lying. It was a, yeah, I don't know. That sort of thing just, uh, 
like melts my brain a little bit because I don't know Catholic things. Um, hmm, what else? This this like also from a different perspective is a movie about parents who cannot care for their children in ways that are like supportive and yeah i mean isn't that true of anything that takes place in the 70s and probably i don't know (laughs) (laughs) because you see it with like not only like the girl's parents but with trip trip's dad yeah his groovy dad his groovy dad who is it is he? I assume that he's gay. They don't say it. Seems it seems that way. But, yeah, but he's but there also with that other man partner. doesn't seem like his other dad. So he doesn't have two dads. It just seems like some guy that his dad is hanging out with. Yeah, in the middle of the but day. But they don't go like enough into it. Right. Um. I think they do in the book. Yeah. I don't quite remember. Um. But yeah, he gives him real bad advice and also like slides a margarita over to mm-hmm. him. Um. So, yeah, Trip didn't really have a chance, probably. Um, and then also, um, at the end of the movie, and this is, like, one of my very favorite scenes at the end of the movie, even though, like, nothing really story-wise happens in it, but the debutante ball season. Yeah, it seems the, like it's from a different movie, though, almost. Yeah, yeah, because... Like, it's, so, when Cecilia dies, it's one summer, and so this is, like, the following summer, and so, um, like, sulfates have, like, gone into the lake and caused this, like, algae super bloom, and so the air smells really bad, and so, like, the, like, I, somebody had a debutante ball theme of, like toxic air or something and everyone's wearing like these really grim kind of crazy gas masks Mm -hmm. it's so bizarre and i love it so much and you're right it does feel like it's from a different movie but i it it's like i see that movie too for a couple yeah it's like the because the movie goes on for like you know 15 more minutes after the girls die right because of this scene yeah. And so it's like you get a glimpse of the how the but world like the, went on after they were gone. How the world went on, but like um when how their and how that, their like, community de- responded. like the degradation uh, like the t- because like in this like larger narrative and I again I think this is more successful in the book, but this larger narrative of um decay and degradation over time in like parallel tracking with the story about the girls is that like one summer is this like idyllic like at the very beginning of the movie there's summer and people playing outside and cicadas and sunshine and whatever and then the following summer after all of this fucked up shit has happened is now in this like kind of dystopian altered state Mm -hmm. it's really interesting but they also like during this party scene like one of them like fakes you know jokingly is like joking about suicide Mm -hmm. like obviously referencing the girls so it's like you get kind of a little glimpse into how different people like responded to yeah 
and like I said, at the, at the I think at the very very beginning of this, that like literally no one in this story has the tools to mm-hmm. cope with this trauma because the boys all saw Cecilia's suicide. Oh, and the other ones too. And I mean, they most saw of the other them. ones too. Yeah, and that is really fucking traumatizing. And like, I can't even because, imagine. Yeah, I want to find a quote from the narration. Um, oh, at some point towards the end um the voiceover is talking about this entity that they had constructed this idea of them the fantasy of them had scarred them and made them like unable to truly bond with women in their real lives Mm -hmm. which i found really interesting um like i find that idea really interesting and obviously they don't have the insight to understand how traumatic this was (laughs) like maybe that's the reason why they're unable to bond with people but um i couldn't find the exact quote of it i just thought that was an interesting um idea and and that like i was talking about before uh with them wondering if like these girls set off all this degradation or that like this was somehow contagious or whatever um, I think is something that we an idea that permeates the culture a lot that um, like it's you know like how women aren't supposed to be on boats or um, or even like how Sofia Coppola was supposedly like really bad in The Godfather Part Three or whichever one it is, and that's why the movie was unsuccessful, and not because of you know any other sorts of reasons that like one woman or this small group of women could be responsible for the entire decline of the Detroit metro area. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that we see play out. You know. I mean, trace it all back to, like, Eve taking a bite of the apple, Mm -hmm. you know, that women are born with this original sin that, uh, like, it's definitely... We must be hidden away It's definitely our fault. Yeah, Yeah. it's definitely our fault. Yeah. Um, And I don't think that this movie necessarily um, pushes back on that idea, but I don't think it necessarily, like, furthers the idea either. I don't know. Um, I think that the... Well, the soundtrack to this is really good. But oh, also Air. That Air soundtrack is so good. The score, yeah, by Air. She's married to one of those people Oh, really? Now. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did the score for Lost in Translation, too. Um, oh, but, like, the way that music and silence um, are used in this, I think, is really fantastic that um like at the very beginning like you're kind of dropped into this atmosphere which like is kind of like immediately established in a really good way with the sound design like there's sound of cicadas and like summer noises and music and whatever and then it you start hearing the sound of a siren and then it cuts to the inside of the bathroom and the music stops and the siren just gets louder. Um, Mm -hmm. Or, like, there are a few times where you see a conversation happening, but you don't know what they're saying, and it, like, 
kind of gives you the idea of this distance from the conversation from conversations that have happened that you're not necessarily privy to but you might have heard about you know uh, secondhand or something like that like when they are uh, pulling up to this is actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie when they pull up to the cemetery um, oh, for Cecilia's yeah. funeral and there's a picket line there of, the workers are on strike the workers are on strike for all of the reason all of the good reasons that people go on strike for living wages you know safety that sort of thing um, and they're like blocking the entrance and so the dad has to get out of the car and you don't hear their conversation but eventually they like make way and the car pulls through and it's just low enough that I think you wouldn't like your brain wouldn't necessarily register it and the only reason that I know that this happened is because I had the captions on but like two of the guys on the picket line have a brief conversation and and one of them says um he said she was only 13. And like yeah, that's you don't hear it, though. Line. I also had the captions on. Mm-hmm. And so, like, when I think of the scene, the whole thing was silent. But then I was like, wait, but they talked. But you can't, yeah. re- you don't hear it. Yeah, yeah, you don't. And it's, I think that that's such an interesting way to to deal with that. Like, there's just so many different, like, interesting kind when of... It's, it allo- I mean, it allows us to fill in the blanks mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's, a, what I, that's a, where I was going yep. yeah like in a way that just is so much more effective like I don't need to hear what they said I, mm-hmm. like just I get it and again like it. trusting your audience to be more sophisticated like you don't have to tell every single thing like you know like the idea of like show don't tell and trust your audience to be smart enough to be able to fill in that space you know and like work a little bit while watching a movie which I think most people aren't really trained to do mm-hmm. but yeah so I'm reading spark notes about Trip Fontaine okay. and basically it's like Trip is like this representation of like American suburban masculinity okay and I don't like, I feel like part of the problem that I'm starting to have with, like, some older movies or even some movies that are out now that are, like, trying their best to make good social commentary is, like, I'm done, I'm done watching or listening to the comments about the social commentary. Just show me something different. Do you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah. I am done. I don't I don't care if the reason this character exists is because you're trying to make some kind of statement about that type of character. I'm done looking mm-hmm. at them. I'm done with it. Yeah. And I think that's like part of the problem. Maybe part of the problem that I have with parts of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least it's hot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when all else fails, just objectify him. <laughs> But yeah, like at this point, I would just rather have my mind opened by seeing something that I've never seen before. Yeah. Or even just watching something that, like, some version of this story that isn't refracted through the male point of view and that just really lives inside of these girls' experience. It would be a, a completely different movie. It wouldn't be, like, the the... I, I could see it being like a very like non-linear kind of 
narrative thing or even that a fantasy sequence that I was talking about before that really strong fantasy sequence when they first get Cecilia's diary could be a short film mm-hmm. all its own you know um, of these girls inner lives and experience which you know I talk about this all the time that we don't get to see the inner lives of women on screen mm-hmm. very often um, and I would like more yes. of that please types of women also mm-hmm. for sure well women sure. and non-binary people um, too just like not men just men sure or even just different kinds of men I'm, I'm open minded here sure <laughs> but I mean I could see I actually could totally see a version of this that is about Cecilia and her like crusading an interest in Mm -hmm. the environment you know what I mean Um, because I don't think people like like now understand how fucked up (laughs) the 70s really were like especially environmentally like there's a reason we have the EPA and stuff you know ineffective though it may be now uh, mm-hmm. there's a reason we have environmental regulations well it's like an instance but of anyway. like I, I don't remember if I've talked That's about this with podcast. you I'm sure we've talked about this but I like have a lot of memories of talking about this with Joey on other podcasts it's like so often the story being told in a movie is just being told by the wrong person. <laughs> yeah. About the wrong person? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. We just uh, recorded an episode of mm-hmm. ha- uh, High School Slumber Party about hackers. And we talked about hackers when we did Matthew Lillard Month. That is like such an interesting movie and I would love to see it about literally mm-hmm. anybody but the main character in the movie. <laughs> like, he sucks. He's boring. Uh, literally That's anyone else could be the main character. It would be so much more interesting. Mm. Joe is mm-hmm. the worst. The real Joe from Wishbone. <laughs> um, well, the guy that shot this movie, the cinematographer... Um, his name i'm sure it's not hard to find if i just took a moment to look edward latchman there you go he has worked with um Mm -hmm. todd haynes a bunch he shot carol and most of his recent films um and i love todd haynes so much i just got a copy of uh, one of his first movies mm-hmm. on Criterion Blu-ray. It's called Safe, mm-hmm. and it's uh, Julianne Moore's like first starring role in a feature film. And it's so good. It's ba- it's kind of a horror movie about mm-hmm. chronic illness and like environmental illness, kind of. Um, and it's fascinating, and it's so good. And it's it uses a lot of. Uh, like so the cinematographer that did virgin suicides did not actually shoot safe but um there are a lot of like similar 
kinds of shots in both movies, which is something where, and Todd Haynes uses this especially a lot, um, like a conversation is happening, like, and people are in kind of like two different rooms, you know, and the camera, like the shot is wide enough that you'll like see somebody through a door in one room and like somewhere else. And it gives like this visual it puts a visual like distance between the two Mm -hmm. people that are having the conversation which Mm -hmm. is kind of like symbolic of the distance between the characters um when we as the audience also then kind of feel that distance yeah yeah and in he uses it so much in safe and it really works for that movie and for that character but um i want to make a version of it that's like the opposite that's like extremely inside you know does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that if, like, for as much as I, I love Safe and as much as I love that movie, like, it would be so different if it was um, made by a woman. Mm-hmm. You know. So, all female reboot of Safe is what I'm saying. Okay, cool. I'll have to see it. I really liked, I've only, I think, only movie of his that I've seen is Far From Heaven. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Oh, wow, it is good. Also, it's based on a movie from, mm, I want to say the 60s, that mm-hmm. is also very good. Yeah. You didn't see Carol? I didn't see Carol. You know what, oh, I think I so have wonderful. it too. Yeah, it's really quite good. It's like one of my favorite movies from recent years. It's just beautiful, and Kate Blanchett is just perfect always, you know? I also uh, recently saw Wonderstruck. I think that's what it's called. Recently, uh, also has Julianne Moore in it, um, and it's. <laughs> I love Todd Haynes because he like sneaks the weirdest shit into his movies. Like half of Wonderstruck is a black and white silent film. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, it's real weird. Um, but that half of the movie. Uh, stars Millicent I don't know if that's her name who's the girl that was in A Quiet Place Um, Millicent Simmons yeah Um, Wonderstruck was her first film role and Mm, she plays a deaf character in that too Uh, it's really interesting because it's like this it tells these like two parallel storylines about two kids with hearing impairments one that takes place in the past and that's the like black and white silent version and then one that takes place in the 70s maybe it's like also the whole thing is a period piece but it's two different periods um yeah just weird stuff he also made um a movie about karen carpenter that's all barbies (laughs) (laughs) it's really quite incredible uh he also snuck a very short shot of a Ken doll scene into Velvet Goldmine. It's like half a second. Yeah. I don't know. How did we get here? Uh, <laughs> you were talking about the similarities between the cinematography oh, okay. in Todd yeah. Haynes' movies and Sofia Coppola movies. Mm-hmm. Or they shared a cinematographer for one of them. For this, for the Virgin Suicides and several of Todd Haynes's mm-hmm. more recent work, yes, that's true. But anyway, 
Do you have anything else on mm-hmm. Kirsten Dunst, on Sofia Coppola? Oh, uh, The Contenders, also on the Cage Club Podcast Network. Find The Contenders wherever you're listening to this right now or at cageclub.me this month. They're also doing a Sofia Coppola movie. I believe they're doing Lost in Translation. So go and check that out. We always wind up on similar, like, two ships passing in the night. We do cross over with them accidentally quite often. Yeah. And it'll be, like, on the calendar, or Joey will tell us, and it'll be like, oh, we're doing either the same movie or the same director, or, like, whatever. Yeah. So, great podcast. Go listen to it. One day we'll put all our minds together and get it together to do one together. Mm-hmm. I read a good book. Oh, yeah? Because when we were talking about Charlie Kaufman... I started Googling what he was up to now, and he's making a movie for Netflix that's based on a book, and I was like, surely if Charlie Kaufman wants to make that book into a movie, I will like that book. Mm-hmm. It was true. What book was it? It's called I'm Thinking of Ending Things, <laughs> and it's a kind of a surreal, horror-y, thriller-y story about a told from the perspective of a woman who is going to meet her new boyfriend's family for the first time. Mm, interesting. Obviously, it's about more than that. Yeah. <laughs> but that's all That's all anyone could say to not give anything away. Mm. I'm also reading a good book um, by a woman named Mallory O'Mara. It's called The Lady from the Black Lagoon, and it is... Um, part biography about this woman named Millicent Patrick who uh, did the character design from for the creature from the Black Lagoon which is one of the most you know iconic creature designs in history and then got like blackballed from Hollywood because the men at the studio weren't happy about her success um, and then part memoir by the author who it's also a creature person. Um, so that's been interesting. Oh, I watched some good uh, movies that were kind of original that I think you might like, too. Which ones? Let's see. Oh, I finally saw Annihilation. Did you see that? No, I started to watch it once and wasn't into it. Interesting. But maybe it was just like the mood that I was in, so I didn't yeah. finish it. I really liked it a lot. Um, and there's a lot of, like, delightfully weird flora in the weird area that they go to. Mm -hmm. Um, I just thought visually it was a really interesting movie, and, you know, I don't know if the story was good. I don't really care. I just liked looking at it. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, it's, you know, it's a team of women, and I was like, oh, Jordan might like this. (laughs) You know, because it it is original, I mean, it's adapted from a novel, but it is original sci-fi. Um, and I just, I forgot, I forget how much I love science fiction. And then I'll like watch a sci-fi movie and be like, oh yeah, I love this. And then <laughs> the climax will happen and it'll be all flashing lights and I'll be like, right, this is why I don't watch that much sci-fi anymore. <laughs> um, I also saw Colossal. Did you see that? No. Also very original. Um, Anne Hathaway plays this woman who 
is, you know, her life's just not going great and she's an alcoholic and she like winds up moving back to her hometown and then like gets involved with this townie uh, played by Jason Sudeikis and but also this whole time um, there's this weird monster that keeps appearing over Seoul, South Korea mm-hmm. but only at this like one specific time of the day and then it um, I don't know there's just a parallel storyline I don't want to give anything away but it's really interesting okay I like that one a lot too um, and I watched a movie I might have told you about this already did I tell you about Advantageous? No. Okay. So. so this was a movie that Netflix acquired and then never promoted. And it's such a shame because it's so good. I think it's from like 2017. Um, and it is uh, written and directed by women. So the star of the film co-wrote it with the director, both of them are Asian American women. It's like a half Asian American cast, and it's so good. It's about this. Uh, I guess she's like the chief marketing officer of some company in this dystopian future New York, where aging is like even worse than it is now. And so they are offering this so-called non-invasive alternative to cosmetic surgery where they like suck your brain out of your body and then put it into a younger hotter body Mm -hmm. um and they're like uh we need a new face for the because like in addition to being in charge of their marketing i guess she's also the face of the company and Mm -hmm. so she's aging and they're like we need to go in a different direction because you're getting old and she's like but what if i had this procedure done and then you know the rest of the movie happens it's mm-hmm. really really interesting it's really good highly recommend makes me so mad that netflix like doesn't like their content strategy is bonkers because they just are putting out so much shit all of the time and like not really promoting most of it mm-hmm. and it just gets buried but like there are so many like extremely good hidden gems on there and that's one of them they don't make it easy to find. Either. No. I mean, I, I, like, I, like last night I came home and was like, I want to watch something. And like the process of scrolling through oh, I know. things it's exhausting. is so, I, I just, I always end up picking something that I've seen already. Yeah. Because it's, and, and I hate now that when you hover, it, it, it used to give place. a, it <sighs> used to give a description of the mm-hmm. thing when you hovered and now it just starts playing the thing. Yeah. I want to read it. Yeah. I, find that really annoying now they're only playing like these weird little trailers but at like at first when they added that feature they were just it was really auto playing the whole thing and i think they were doing that to inflate their um statistics but anyway (laughs) um everything is fake don't trust anything uh or any numbers not that netflix releases their numbers but anyway um Yeah, I don't understand why, you know, we have all of these algorithms to suggest things that we're going to like, and then I spend hours and hours being like, I don't want to watch any of this. I also wish that all streaming platforms had some sort of randomizer button that I could just be like, I want to watch King of the Hill. Give me a random episode, please. You know, I wish that it went even farther than that. Like, 
I well a couple of things. I have a couple of dreams because because somebody made a Nicolas Cage one mm. where you could just go to this website and be like, pick a Nicolas Cage movie for me, and it would just play one. And you had a couple of choices where it was like, what you could pick a genre or you could not. Mm. Um, and I want that for all of Netflix. Yeah. I want like a pick one for me and sometimes I want it to be completely random and sometimes I want to give you a little bit of information mm-hmm. and then I want you to pick for me. Yeah, for sure. I started playing um, cause I, when I like really don't know what else to watch, I just rewatch old friends episodes. Mm-hmm. I do. That's what I do with King of the Hill. Yeah. But I, I never know how to choose them myself. So I roll dice oh, online cause with friends there's 10 seasons. Yeah. Which you can always find a 10-sided die. And then there's like 20-something episodes a season. So you just roll the 30-sided die. And that's how I pick what episodes I watch. That's so smart. I might mm-hmm. start doing that. It's a good system. Yeah. Because it was great when uh, FXX was like just airing The Simpsons constantly forever for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, and I just wish that there was some channel with just king of the hill on at all times <laughs> i could just turn on and be like oh look it's the episode where hank dances with ladybird <laughs> last night when i couldn't figure out what to watch i started rewatching the oc oh, oh my god i love that show so much yeah, and I was like, what if this isn't good? And then I started no, watching good. it, and I was like, oh, no, it's terrible, and I love it. I mean, yeah, it is, I guess, terrible. I think it's great. I think it's actually not that bad at all. I rewatched it before I went to California a couple of years ago. Even though I was going to a completely different part of California, I was like, got to get in the mood. California, here we come. I mean, I definitely cried when the theme started playing for the first time. Because <laughs> in the first episode, it takes a long time. You like yeah. meet Ryan Atwood first, and you learn his whole like sad backstory. Yeah. And then is it when he meets Marissa that it starts playing? No, it starts playing like either right before or like. Oh no, when he's in the car. He he call yeah. So he calls Sandy Cohen uh-huh. to rescue him oh, because he's Sandy been kicked Cohen. out of his house. Uh-huh. And that's when it starts to play. Right. And then he's oh, in the car, yeah. and it's, like, yeah. streaming past him. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. I have chills, too. <laughs> oh, but Misha Barton is a terrible actress in it. She's not the greatest. She's really She's bad. fine. I think she, A, she gets better, and B, she, like, leans into the character more, it so is. it works more. And then, like, Marissa is just an asshole, and you just have to be okay with that. I, I think she's at her best when she goes through her bisexual phase with yeah what's her name with um oh gosh i can't remember mhm her name is alex on the in the show i just don't remember what her name is in real life and she's so famous now anyway she wasn't uh, at the time mm, olivia something mm. who knows uh, Olivia Wilde. There you go. There it is. Mm-hmm. Um, Seth Cohen, though. What a fucking fuckboy. He is <laughs> the worst. And that was a uh, rude revelation that I had when I rewatched it a couple of years ago. And I was like, oh, no. He's bad. Yeah. They're, they're all they're bad. They're all though. bad. But, yeah. 
Except for, I, I like the journey that Summer goes on. Summer like, goes on a summer, beautiful journey. Summer is the only one who, like, starts at the bottom and arrives at the top, yeah. kind of. Oh, I love her, too. She's so good. What's her toy horse name? Her what? She has a, a toy horse, oh, and Seth uh, has a toy horse named Nestor Oates. Uh, yeah, what is her horse Princess name? Princess Sparkle. Yeah. I just, I, and then she has a, a bunny rabbit named Pancakes. Oh, she, she does have a bunny rabbit named Pancakes. And, and it's Chris Pratt's yeah. first role. Who I was like, right? oh, this guy is a comic genius. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's his very first role, but I But like, like the first thing that like we saw him in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I really liked him for a long time until very recently. I had to go and ruin it. But he took fine. a turn. Yeah. You know, don't we all? Who amongst us has not taken a turn? Ah, <laughs> uh, now I want to rewatch the OC. What if this is just an OC podcast now? No. <sighs> no. <laughs> you know, I the rewatching it a couple of years ago was really interesting, and I don't know if you've had if you've run into this yet, where now that I am a full grown adult, I was. Um, empathizing with the parents a lot more than the teens. Mm-hmm. And I was like, is this just a cautionary tale about raising teenagers? Because <laughs> um, I think all the adults actually have pretty interesting journeys on that show, too. That's they Like, already in the first episode, you can see they, like, start to flesh out the mm-hmm. lives of the adults, too. And they do a really good job, I think, through the series of, like... Yeah. Like, Julie doing, Cooper is doing one both of sides my of everyone's lives. favorite like tv villains of all time and she has a real journey too like mm-hmm. her arc is one of my favorites i think like next to summer probably my favorites in the show mm-hmm. and kirsten she sees some shit you know yeah and sandy cohen's the best <sighs> those eyebrows eyebrows yeah it's true he is the best i love him so much um something that's interesting that i noticed when i was rewatching is um you can see the introduction of botox happen oh (laughs) because like in season one uh the adult women's faces are moving a lot more (laughs) than in season two they are not um nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with that you know it's just uh it was an interesting thing to observe because it's now so prevalent that it, mm-hmm. it, I was wondering, like, when did that happen? And that was, like, right around when HD television was mm-hmm. starting to happen and it's whatnot. true, yeah. I mean, I got Botox for a couple of years for migraines, and I still can't move my forehead the same way. Weird. It is really weird. I would probably still be getting it if not for the fact that I like to move my eyebrows. Mm-hmm. You know. That's fair. Mm-hmm. I'm moving my face. This is a podcast. You can't see it. I've, I'm moving my face in a way that I feel very grateful that I'm able to move my face. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things. You don't know what it's got, what you got till it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> like, I used to be able to, like, raise my eyebrows independently of each other. Mm-hmm. Now I can kind of raise my left eyebrow in a quizzical glance, but I can't do eyebrow dancing anymore. Mm. Yeah. But it's fine. 
my wrinkle my forehead wrinkles started much later than they otherwise would have <laughs> okay anything else no uh me neither cool Thanks for listening, y'all. Kara, where can we find you? You can find me on Instagram at bimps, B-I-M-P-S-E. You can find me uh, at cageclub.me slash Kara. Like I mentioned, I'll be on an upcoming episode of High School Slumber Party where we're talking about hackers. Uh, and that was a real fun convo. Um, and I've been on plenty of other Cage Club shows. So you can find all of that, cageclub.me slash Kara with a C. Uh, that's about it. Cool. You can find me on Instagram at JordoPC. We will be back next week with a chew for everyone to hear. And we will be back in two weeks with, I'm going to say, oh, what movie did we choose? Oh, I don't think we narrowed it down yet. No, we did. What's that one where it's a beauty pageant? Gorgeous. I, th- I think that's what we chose. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's what I'm choosing. Okay, so Drop Dead Gorgeous, but also I really want you to watch Woodshock. Okay, so we'll be back. Maybe with another Jim Carrey style, Kirsten Dunst. Mega Mix. Every movie, Mega Mix. <laughs> uh, we will talk to you then. Bye. Bye. I can think of younger days. I can think of younger days. Younger days. Younger days.
never told us about the sorrow. So Oh, oh, wet, tell me. 